This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 12 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. This week, we've taken departure from our normal program format. In fact, we've gone to nearly two hours which is unusual for On Another Track. The reason is we met an exceptional person by the name of Hal Bastian. Many people call him the mayor of downtown, or as he likes to call himself, the butler of LA. Don't ask, you'll find out later. The intriguing thing is, this man with the help of others has helped to rebuild LA over the last 27 years, turning it from a homeless downtown area of only 18,000 inhabitants to an amazing metropolis with over 85,000 people living downtown. Listen how he changed his life over that period of 30 years, survived HIV, drugs and alcoholism to come out the other side and get himself on another track. To break the program up into more bite-sized chunks, we've actually divided this interview into two parts. So the first part will be now, and the next episode of On Another Trout will be part two. I urge you to listen very carefully to Hal Bastian and how he managed to navigate the murky waters of downtown LA and also the even murkier waters of his own personal life. Please be aware Hal is passionate, so he pulls no punches, talks candidly, honestly, and sometimes bluntly. But remember, the ultimate aim of this program is to inspire and to help you get yourself on another track. I normally start by asking my guest the question first, but Hal being Hal, he took the reins straight away and was off to the races. Enjoy the roller coaster ride. It's going to be fun. Well, I'm sober. I'm in the vertical. I'm on the right side of the grass and I'm doing a podcast with David Wilson. What could be better than that? Oh, I couldn't think of anything better myself. That's fantastic intro. I wanted to start with a quick question really about what you've been doing in the recent years that uh, you've been around in Los Angeles. How did you become involved with the downtown Los Angeles Renaissance? Well, that involved a lot of alcohol and cocaine. (laughs) And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So here's the here's the the background on me. Uh, I'll, I'll try to do sixty years in in a couple of minutes. I uh, I I live in downtown Los Angeles. I'm a real estate guy. I live uh, commercial real estate. I live two blocks of our city hall. Uh, I was born a mile and a half from where I'm talking to you, David, at Queen of Angels Hospital. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, went to high school at Granada Hills High School. And I was the drum major of the marching band. In my year, between 77 and 78, we won the all-city championship for band and drill team, which was a big deal. And it was the beginning of kind of leadership that I started doing. And we had a quarterback named John Elway, who was a year my junior. And uh, we won all our football games. So it was very good. Fantastic. I went directly to college. First uh, person in my family to go to college. I went to UCLA, went directly to law school uh, in 1982. Uh, but I was coming out as a gay man and drinking alcoholically 
And, you know, law school was getting in the way of both those things. So I did the next indicated step, which is I dropped out of law school and I became a bartender. Wow. Fantastic job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you join your affinity group. And, and, but I, I did that because I, not to drink, I didn't drink at work, but, but I did that because I knew I would meet somebody who would turn me on to some profession I didn't know anything about. And sure enough, I met somebody involved in commercial real estate in 1983 doing real estate. So that's kind of the, the, the underpinning foundation of, of this. And, uh, I, in 1994, I got, uh, recruited by a big company called Cushman and Wakefield, uh, who does commercial real estate leasing. And my background is office-based leasing and retail and restaurants. So in 1994, uh, downtown was not a happening place in 1994. We were in a recession until the fifties. Downtown was the center of anything, everything, but when we suburbanized, it became less so. But there was a project called Broadway Plaza. It's a hotel, retail, and office. And I got hired as the leasing agent on the retail. And I thought I'd do that for a couple of years, David, but I ended up doing it for like six. And then in, in the year 2000, um, here in Los Angeles, we had passed a, a new public policy called the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance, which allowed for conversion of old office buildings into residential. And until 1965, this was a 13-story uh, city. And uh, so we started converting old office buildings to residential. I left corporate America to become the first leasing agent on uh, a neighborhood we dubbed the old bank district in the 13 story downtown. I was ex extremely successful on a, on, a, on a good day. I'm a good salesman and a good leasing agent. And then in 2001, I was hired by an entity called the Downtown Center Business Improvement District, which is a mouthful, but it's a nonprofit. And I describe it as a private government. Uh, business improvement districts, uh, the authority to exist comes from the state. They have a specific geographic boundary. The downtown center bid is 65 blocks. And uh, its job is to keep the streets clean and safe. Because if they're not clean and safe, nobody wants to be walking on them. And they can have an economic development component too, which is promoting uh, to get new tenants and residents and office you know, people downtown and so on. So I got recruited by the Business Improvement District in 2001. At that time, we had 18,000 people living in downtown. Uh, to give you an idea, today we have 85,000 people. Wow, what a change. I've had the privilege of being involved in every single development in downtown really for the last 20, 20 years because what I did at the Business Improvement District from 2000, uh, 2001 to 2014 is I was the salesman of downtown. Some people have called me Mr. Downtown and the mayor of downtown. Um, and I view myself as the butler of downtown, which we can talk about. But um, I was the guy that was helping everybody get confidence in the marketplace to come here. And I was one person in the community among many, but I was a, I was a drum major of, uh, of the Renaissance. And then uh, in 2014, I went to work for myself doing consulting and back to my roots of real estate brokerage. And now I've been asked to, uh, you know, be interviewed by David Wilson. <laughs> there we are, a full circle. How was that? I mean, that was 60 years in like four and a half minutes. I, I wish I could do it that quick myself, actually, to be fair. But you said on a good day, Hal's a great salesman. And that was a really great statement. But paint me the picture of how on the bad day. Let's go back to those dark places, if you don't mind going and take oh, us on that journey. Sure. But equally, you know, when you go through on that journey, tell me how you find the roadmap to kind of where you've got to now. Yeah. So I was what was called a functioning alcoholic, right? I come, uh, I come from a long line of alcoholism down both sides of my family. And then I did it one better and I got involved with cocaine. And then I got involved with learning how to put cocaine in solution and injecting it. And you know, I was uncomfortable in my own skin since the day I was born, which to me is what alcoholism is about. It's just not feeling great. And when you discover alcohol, um, 
uh, and I knew about alcohol and I, I knew that it destroyed my father's life and I vowed I would never do it, but you know, I did, which is not an uncommon story. And, and, uh, you know, it sedated my feelings and I was able to function. Um, I was a good functioning alcoholic, wasn't a good functioning, uh, cocaine addict. So the reason that I got to this place where I am today, and I, I, I halfway joke about it being due to cocaine and alcohol is because during my career, I was constantly quitting just before they might fire me <laughs> once I did get fired, but I was always reinventing myself to stay one step ahead of the green reaper, you know, I understand that. And yeah. before somebody pulled my covers. And when I was at the old bank district, leasing up these loft style apartments, um, I, I had what we call a bottom, which was drinking and using wasn't working, not drinking and using was imp- impossible. Uh, I was a failure at overdosing. And so that left getting clean and sober. So I did that on um, February 5th of 2001. And it was it was in sobriety that I got to join the, the business improvement district. And what I like to say is that my recovery of me as a human being allowed me to help downtown LA recover from a place that nobody wanted to be. That's a great parallel, isn't it? So yeah. that's it. And I suffer historically, I don't today, thank God, I've grown a little bit. Um, but I suffer from something I call the Mount Everest Mariana Trench syndrome, which means uh, as an egoic alcoholic, I'm better than everybody. And I'm not as good as anyone all at the same time. Better than, not as good as at the same time. And that's something that you want to sedate. So those are the downsides. The, 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 the upside, you know, sometimes, David, things that look bad can be good. So if but for the fact that during my alcoholism, I was getting exposed to all levels of real estate, office, retail, restaurants, bars, industrial, um, I manage buildings too, and I retail, hospitality. If but for my alcoholism, I wouldn't have had so many exposures to so many fields of real estate, and I would not have been as in good a position to speak that language to all the people that I interacted with and recruited to downtown Los Angeles. So sometimes things that look bad can be good. Well, it's like you say, every cloud has a silver lining, doesn't it? But what were the the dark places that you had to go to 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 get the reality of where you were? I mean, what was that all about? Because let's be totally straight, you know, there's two sides of the coin and, and there's the good bit that you just sort of talked about, but the bad bits are pretty awful, aren't they? I mean, they really are. Well, I referred to overdosing and this, this is as personal as it probably will ever get on your show, but that's okay. So uh, I, I had stopped using cocaine for five years. I'd stopped shooting up for five years and which, without a pro, any kind of program. You know, you hear 12-step programs and cognitive programs. And I, I stopped all on my own because I was overdosing and almost dying a little too often. So I decided to pull back from the brink. When I was leasing the old bank district, um, I had leased 64 units on our second building that we were bringing to market. And I'd given a date certain for people to move in. And I'd signed the leases and taken their money and made them a promise. And then um, the fire marshal came in and said, you're not opening because you have all these corrections to make. And when you're, when you're a salesman or a leasing agent, you don't just sell or lease a product. You sell you. You sell your promise. At least I do. And um, I was so distraught that somehow, some way, I thought it would be a really good idea to shoot up a little cocaine and feel better. And I went back to my, uh, my dealer, who was still in the same place five years later, went to the pharmacy, did that stuff, and did the deed. And um, I was so ashamed, David. I was so ashamed that I had done that. 
that uh, I just felt that I w- I just didn't deserve to live. And so I, uh, I was at suicide's front door. And luckily, I'm a failure at suicide so far. And but but listen to this. I rationalized it like this. If you jump off a building, you jump onto a subway track or in front of a bus. That is for sure suicide, for sure. If you overdose on a drug and you don't know exactly how much it will take to kill yourself, then it's accidental. So I decided that, you know, when they found me, it would just look like a drug overdose versus a suicide. I would save face in my family. And when I got to the pearly gates, you know, if they said you did a suicide, I'm like, I wasn't sure it wasn't really a suicide. So it was very, very um, calculated. And it was also, I felt that I, I wanted to emancipate my friends and family from this scumbag named Hal Bastion that couldn't control himself, right? So for your listeners, I want to say this. If, if anybody has ever had someone in their life who has committed suicide or attempted it, just know that it is such a dark place that you don't think rationally. And there's probably nothing anybody could have done to stop it. Because that's one of the things that happens when people die is there people are like, oh, I didn't catch the signal. I should have asked. I'm part of it. And and that's the problem with suicide. Suicide doesn't end pain. It begins pain for a lot of other people, right? And I'm convinced, I'm a really spiritual guy. I'm convinced they just send you right back. You know, like, uh, do over, you know? <laughs> and so, and so that, so that's how professionally I got to, to where, to where I am. And I, I lived through it. And, you know, we have, um, in downtown, uh, unfortunately, downtown LA is, is, has the worst homeless and mental illness problem in America, right? We have encampments and so, and, and we have people that are mentally ill, uh, on the streets, and I'm mentally ill too. I suffer from a physiological depression, and uh, and I I'm, li- I'm I'm speaking to you from my beautiful loft at the Douglas Building at Third and Spring, and and, and a block away from me are people shooting up and dying in tents uh, at at Third and Main. And David, there but for the grace of God go I. If if I ever make the insane choice to drink. It's going to lead to using and, you know, I very well could end up, you know, in, in that place. And so I've done a lot in downtown to help build a great downtown Los Angeles in terms of getting new residents to live here, getting businesses to come here. I helped to recruit Ralph's and Whole Foods to open here so we could have all the amenities. But the balance of my life is committed to um, help stopping the normalization of people dying in the streets. And that means shelter, it means housing, and also it means building more affordable housing. The reason things are so expensive everywhere to build, it takes a long time to build it. So a developer buys a piece of land in downtown LA for $40 million. And then seven years later, they get their first dollar return because it takes so long to go through the process and they got to get that money back. And, and it's, it's outrageous. So I want to work on and helping facilitate faster construction and, and help people that, uh, you know, are in addiction. I will tell you that, it, you know, the people that are on the streets, it's not a housing issue. I could go offer housing right now to somebody that's in one of those tents. Uh, and even, even, in, even in a situation where I wouldn't tell them they had to stop drinking or using, but offer them housing and they'll decline it because they're paranoid. They think you're going to spy on them. 
you know, things like that. And so we really have to make a distinction on shelter, house, housing, and, and what all, all the all the elements here. And and I'm involved in a group called the LA Alliance for Human Rights. And you know, we believe that it's a, it's a human rights catastrophe to allow people to die in the streets. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit too. Okay, I've got so many questions I want to ask you. So let me go down the one that's really gnawing at my heart, okay? And you know Edmonton, actually. I'm based up oh, in Edmonton yeah. in uh, Alberta. And uh, I know you've got an affinity with the, the city here as well. And there's some similar problems here. So, so one of the things that I discovered coming from the UK in 2009 was I was so shocked by the amount of homeless people on the street. We're talking about three and a half thousand people, you know. And for a city of a million people, that really doesn't, in terms of North America, that doesn't really sound like a lot, probably. But to somebody coming from little old UK and good old Blighty, I was just shocked. I was blown away by how, as human beings, that we could let this happen. Now, naively, I, I thought, you know, everybody was like, you know, the, the northern, you know, sort of part of Europe where we're all very socialist. We have a, you know, national health system. We have a social system. It's the net that catches you when you fall down and helps you back up, you know, that utopia. Why has it got so out of whack in North America, in your opinion? Well... It, it, it's it's an overnight crisis that took 60 years to develop, really. And uh, let, I could speak to, to Los Angeles. Um, in, in 1924, 100,000 people lived in downtown Los Angeles. As I mentioned, when I got here uh, in the 90s, it was 18,000 people. And, uh, and so what happened is this. After World War II, Los Angeles started to suburbanize and people didn't have to go downtown to go to their office. They could go to, to an office building closer to them. And in Los Angeles, when we talk about commuting from one place to another, we don't talk about miles. We talk about time because depending on the time of day, it could take you 30 minutes to get someone or an hour and a half, right? So people perhaps didn't want to commute to downtown, so they stayed closer. Um, we started doing regional malls and things like that. So people, it used to be that people had to come down, you know, until the, the 50s and early 60s to shop, but now they could shop in their, in their own neighborhoods. And uh, we had a situation where there's always been homelessness, right? There's always been homelessness. And, um, but in downtown, we had the 13-story downtown, and we started building the taller downtown in the, in the late 60s. And over the better part of the decade, the old downtown vacated. There was nobody in the upper floors of the buildings. And so guess what that did to the retailers on the ground floor, right? And we, as a matter of public policy, decided, you know what? There's nobody in, in the historic downtown, so we're going to start – for, for our homeless population, for our mentally ill people, what we call social services, we're going we're gonna to build those facilities on the eastern side of the old downtown So because nobody lives there. See, the way our government works is we have 15 council districts in the city of Los Angeles. And the, LA, the way our, our government works here is we have state government, which handles broad issues. We have 58 county governments, which, which handle like um, welfare and public health issues, which are kind of big, big right now during COVID and including mental illness. Then we have cities that handle things like land use, what you can build, public safety, fire, uh, you know, and police. And so, you know, that's, that's how, that's how it works. And 
the county of LA has 10 million people. Of the 10 million, 4 million are in the city of Los Angeles. And in the city of Los Angeles, there's 15 elected officials. Think of those as 15 little mayors. And then we have a mayor of the city of Los Angeles. And the way our, our government works is through the 20s, we had a very strong mayor who could do a lot, but we had prohibition talking about drugs, right? We had a prohibition and our, our mayors were corrupt. And so we shifted, my joke is we shifted the corruption to 15 people instead of one, right? Right. All right. So, which is only another thing I'm only halfway kidding about. We've had some scandals recently. So, um, so people vote where they live. Well, if you have 50, 15 council districts, but one of them really doesn't have anybody that votes, where best to put your missions, your psychiatric facilities, and things like that? Because if you tried to put those facilities into West Los Angeles by UCLA or Northridge, you heard about a big earthquake here a few years ago, the people would vote you out of office, right? Yeah. So so how it happened is, is it was out of sight, out of mind. It was a ghetto, meaning... Uh, you know, one one constituency that was marginalized in one area and not in the rest of, of the city. And due to a series of federal lawsuits over about the last 15 years, um, it has gotten worse and worse and worse. We used to have a law in the books that prohibited you from sitting, lying, or sleeping on, sleeping on a public sidewalk. And that was challenged in federal court and the city lost. Uh, and there was the most recent lawsuit uh, was called Martin v. Boise. It didn't happen in LA, but it affected the nine Western states. So Mr. Martin was in Boise, Idaho. He was on a street and the police came along and said, Hey buddy, you got to move. And he's like, I don't have anywhere to go. And they got, we have a place for you to go. We can take you to the mission. And he refused to go. So he was arrested and it made it way, its way up to the ninth circuit court of appeals uh, of federal court as breaking his, his civil rights. And the court ruled that unless Boise had a shelter bid for every single homeless person in its jurisdiction, it couldn't force one to go into it. Wow. Wow. Really something. And it was, and they appealed it to the Supreme court of the United States and the Supreme court refused to hear it. So right now in the nine, in the nine Western States, including California, if somebody were to encamp in front of somebody's home in suburbia on the parkway, which is owned by the city, not the homeowner. And that person refused to move. There's not a damn thing you could do about it. God, that's, right? that's pretty radical. And if, the, and if the city does it, they're subject to punitive financial damages. So what we, so the reason it has gotten so bad is the government is afraid to talk to anybody or do anything because they don't want to get sued. So, okay, so so practically then, as as occupants, as people living in downtown LA, for instance, you have to then take not necessarily the law into your own hand, but you have to be active. You have to decide. Okay, if the council can't do it. We as people have to do it. Is that is that the kind of viewpoint yeah. that you took? Yeah. So so what happened is uh, there's so now let's just call it a, a, a de facto civil right to be homeless, right? It's it's not codified, but as a result of these lawsuits, that, that's effectively or de facto the way it is. So the unintended consequence of giving people these kinds of rights is that we are allowing them. And it's not everybody, but in downtown, a huge number of the people that are on the streets are mentally ill and or addicted. It enables them to be in the public realm, drinking and using and slowly killing themselves. They are killing themselves as surely as I tried to do it, you know, but in a much slower fashion. 
We think that's a violation. We, a group of us, think that's a violation of their human rights. And by the way, what we're talking about is, you know, one fraction of 1% of the population who is in the streets in, in major encampments. I mean, so that people in wheelchairs and other people can't pass by because they don't feel safe, right? And, uh, and if, you know, is your property worth more with a clean sidewalk or people in, in tents, you know, defecating in the curb, of, you know, needles, typhus, you name it. So a group of us got together that I keep referencing and we, we cr- created a very interesting legal entity. It's, it's called a California Unincorporated Association. We are an affinity group. We're, we're people that believe it's not okay to let people kill themselves in the public realm and, and hurt the whole community. And we don't have a board of directors. We don't have a, we don't have a, a formal mission statement. We don't have a roster. We don't have a bank account. But what we have is standing in federal court. Love it. I just love what you've just described there. It's so different, isn't it? Yeah. So a group of us got together and, you know, we have to hire lawyers, right? So uh, we hired Landis, Spurtis, and Umhofer, which is another mouthful, and uh, a woman named Elizabeth Mischer, who's a lawyer who was, used to be an uh, assistant city attorney who has dealt in a lot of uh, issues like this. And we asked Elizabeth to uh, research a way that we could make a, a difference because the politicians can't do it politically. Is that right? Yeah, so that guess sense. what? In America, we did not get civil rights, and we still don't have them to a big extent. You've been maybe reading about and seeing, unfortunately, but we're 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 hopefully heading in a better direction. Um, but we didn't get civil rights in this country through democracy. People in Congress didn't sit there to give black people rights, right? It came down through the board of Brown versus the Board of Education. It came through riots, and then it came through. Sound familiar? Yep. And then it came through the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And, and you know, Dr. King said, you know, someday that he, he hoped that people would be judged on the quality of their character rather than the color of their skin. And tragically, you know, people are still being judged by the color of their skin. So we're not, we're not there yet. So adopting that precept is that uh, we came up with, uh, Elizabeth did, uh, we came up and we, and a bunch of people in the com- community, uh, we raised money to pay Elizabeth and her firm. And uh, I, I've been a big fundraiser for this cause. And we came up with a lawsuit that we filed on March 10th of last year, right before COVID hit. And what the lawsuit says effectively is that and we sued the city and the county to say, you guys have failed as, as governors. You have failed and you, you um, are not creating shelter and doing things that you need to be doing. And you need to provide uh, immediate shelter for, for these people. And what that does effectively is it gives, uh, it gives political cover for, um, for the electeds so that if we start working to do regionalized shelter in all 15 uh, council districts, um, then they won't get voted out of office, will they? And if anybody's interested, the website for the LA Alliance for Human Rights is uh, la-alliance.org, la-alliance.org. 
And you can read all about it. You can read the original complaint in federal court. It included things, by the way, in terms of the causes of action. I'm not a lawyer, as you know, but it was um, ADA. We have uh, national law that prevents blockage of sidewalks for handicapped people. It had it has to do with the taking of property values without compensation by the government. Uh, it uh, involves equity. These things are allowed in in downtown, but not in front of the millionaires' homes in Brentwood. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to do with public health. That the that you know these are vectors and rampant things. But all of it is, its purpose is twofold. It is to help save lives, David, and give people at least the option to get into shelter and things like that. Uh, At least give them the option. There's a great emphasis here put on what we call primitive supportive housing, uh, which is incredibly expensive to build and it's very slow to build. And we're saying, let's get them sheltered first and you work on, you know, housing second. But the, the reason that our homeless population is so big is, uh, we, you know, everybody knows you can move to Los Angeles, live on a sidewalk, and no one will bother you. So we're enabling it. Enjoying the roller coaster ride so far? I hope you are. Next, I decided to ask Hal about his personal life and how he has very little memory uh, before the age of 10. He said he was the perfect little boy, But what happened when he went to university and why did he decide not to finish law school? You were born uh, Queens of Angels Hospital in, I think it was June 25th, 1960, if correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, Tell me about you and your family. You know, where did mum and dad come from and, and, and did we have brothers and sisters and siblings? What was your life like when you were younger? Well, let's see. Uh, My mom and dad were from Michigan. My uh, father was from Northern Michigan, uh, which we call the Copper Country. Upper Michigan is what the state of Michigan got, got as consolation because they didn't get, I think they, they wanted Toledo. <laughs> in, in their state, they didn't get it. So the government gave, they said, here, take this Upper Peninsula. So my dad was from there. My, my mom grew up in the Detroit area, Southfield. Um, a lot of people had come over from Finland to the Northern Peninsula uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s for economic opportunity. Ironically, they moved from one freezing cold climate to another. And they had copper mines there. So they went to to, uh, copper mine. My great-grandfather was a copper miner on my mom's side. And here's the deal. Um, Alcoholism uh, is not a moral choice. It is. It may be a moral choice. Your first drink is a is a moral choice. But um, Finland has the highest rate of alcoholism in the world. <laughs> well, they have so many dark nights. Give us a break. Well, yeah. Yeah. What else do we do? So, <laughs> so what happened was a church was established called the Apostolic Lutheran Church, and they decided that alcohol was ruining people's lives, and they decreed nobody should drink. Right. So nobody did. And, and a lot of people, though, as the copper industry waned, they moved to the Detroit area, including my grandfather. Uh, so my great-grandfather was a copper miner. His son, my grandfather, became an electrician. He moved to Detroit. And they were part of that same church. So they drive 12 hours, like we I drive across town to go to Ralph's, you know, grocery store. And um, my father proposed to my mom. And there was one issue. My father liked to drink. So... He worked. He was a cable splicer for Ma Bell when it was a uh, when it was a uh, monopoly, and he got a transfer to Los Angeles. 
And that was in the mid fifties, like 55 ish. Um, and so, you know, he came here so he could drink like a gentleman. And by the way, my father, when he wasn't drinking, was a fabulous man. And when he was drinking, not so much. Right. That's very typical. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, uh, and then in, in 59, my dad's mom was dying of uh, stomach cancer and my mom and dad went up and for, I think a couple of months for that transition. And then nine months later, I was born at Queen of Angels Hospital near downtown Los Angeles. So I like to say the scene of the crime was Northern Michigan. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What a coincidence. Yeah. So my mom and dad <laughs> lived about 30 miles from downtown in a, in a bedroom community in the San Fernando Valley called Northridge. Um, and I, I was an only child. Dad was a cable splicer. Mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was of five. And then because of alcoholism, when I was 10, my parents divorced and my father went back to Michigan. Uh, and remarried and had two boys and two girls, but my mom stayed here right. and Got stayed you. in the house. And, uh, and, you know, two years later married another alcoholic, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a syndrome. I'm happy to report to you that was I, when I was drum major, the marching band at Granada Hills high school uh, in 1977, th- there was another band parent. His name is Daryl. And uh, my mom and Daryl met and, uh, he became her third husband, and he he was and is a saint. They were together for, for 35 years prior to my my mom's uh, uh, death in uh, 2015. So she she finally got it good. <laughs> wow, she she got to a good age though, eh? What a fantastic uh, yeah, sort of age. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so looking back, what do you think your influences were in terms of what formulated you as as a personality, as a person? I mean, what were your interests being an only child? How did you occupy your time? Well, here here's what it was, David. When my parents got divorced, all I was, all I heard was, oh God, you know, now, you, you know, it's going to be hard for you to amount to anything because you're from a broken family and all that kind of stuff. And so what happened is I became the, uh, the best little boy in the world, right? So my mom's only child. I'm a latchkey kid. She has to go to work. Um, I don't want to cause her any grief. And so I go to school. I, I, uh, I'm never tardy. You see, I start wanting to control things because I couldn't control anything. In fact, I have almost no memories from, you know, birth till 10. I mean, you know, just a, a total wipeout of memory. So God knows what, what all was there. But, um, and, and so I decided to prove them wrong. Right. And so what happened is I was very controlled, didn't cause any trouble. Um, I hung around with kids at school whose parents were doctors and lawyers and corporate executives. And those, those were my, my role models. You know, I was drum major of the marching band. I did really, really well at UCLA. And, uh, and then I got to law school and law school was the first thing that I ever said I was going to do that I didn't complete. And, and it still kind of bugs me to this day. But, but it's the best I could do, you know, at the time. And so I was a little latent causing trouble for my mother because I was a good functioning alcoholic. But when I was 29, I discovered cocaine and I just, and, and you know, the best way to use drugs is intravenously. So, so I went for all American boy to junkie. That's the duality of it. Right. And, and that's a hallmark of alcoholism is, is black or white. I mean, there's, I keep going to Home Depot to get a rheostat for my brain to get something in the middle, and I still can't find it to this day. <laughs> you see, you're not gray at all. I'm not gray. You know, it's alcoholism, <laughs> not alcoholism. So, you know, I, I just replace things with other, you know, other activities. So, 
So um, I was, I was, and have been a very, very driven man. Um, hey, David, you know, we, we talked mm-hmm. about um, sometimes, you know, quote unquote, bad things being good. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you a little story that's related to our, our dialogue. And I promise to let you get in another question. In 2006, uh, and this could save someone's life that listens to this podcast. Uh, I hope it will save it. Uh, there's three parts to the story. I have an incredibly high threshold for physical pain, not dental pain, but physical pain. Um, I, I'm too busy to go to the doctor. I'm a stubborn guy and I'm an idiot. So with that in mind, on um, January 25th, 2006, I was in my office. I got an incredible acute pain in my abdomen and I thought immediately, oh my God, could this be my appendix? And with my advanced medical training in political science from UCLA, I'm like, no, this pain is from my far right side to my far left side. Everybody knows your appendix is on the lower right. It must have been something I ate at lunch. It's just food poisoning. That was a Wednesday, the 25th. Fast forward in LA, downtown. Fast forward to the 28th of January in Washington, D.C. at the emergency room of George Washington Hospital. I, had to fl- I went to fly. Any, any thoughtful person would have gone to the ER that day. But I, the next day I had a meeting for 60 people. I was to run it. And, you know, you're taught as a Lutheran, unless your arm is falling off, you show up, right? Exactly, the, yeah. So, so uh, it turns out uh, that my appendix had ruptured on Wednesday. And, and it is now Saturday. And so bottom line is I almost died twice in Washington, D.C. I was out of commission for a long time. I couldn't go to the gym for over two years. So on, and then I had another surgery in 08, June of 08, to fix a lot of damage to my abdomen. Oh, by the way, I had, <laughs> I had peritonitis, which is a total infection of your abdomen. I had gangrene in my intestine. A part of my intestine was necrotic, had died. And I had sepsis. Besides that, I was doing really great. So, so in 2008, I had to have a surgery to fix that, a bunch of stuff. I had a horrible scar, take that out. And on August 28th of 2008, I was healed up. I didn't have an open wound anymore. And I said, I'm going to start exercising again. This goes to all or nothing thinking. So <laughs> black and white. <laughs> so on August 28th, I went back to my gym, the LA Athletic Club, for the first time in two and a half years. And I said on August 28, 2008, I'm going to exercise in some way, shape, or form once a day, every day, until the day I don't. Well, David Wilson, as of today... That because I just finished exercising before I got here to do your podcast. And thanks for asking me. Um, Today was my 4,536 consecutive day of exercising. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. The the translation to that is 12 years and five months. And you you may, so you, you may be able to read between the lines. I really don't get sick. Certainly not sick enough not to exercise in some way. Now, if I have bronchitis, I'm probably not going to do 40 minutes of cardio, but I'm going to go on a couple mile walk and not infect anybody, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that is a very important, you know, important thing. And, you know, I got sober on, as I mentioned, on February 5th, 01. So I've been able to consistently do that. And my issue uh, in terms of my kind of, you know, what I made up of, right, is that if I make a decision to do something, I do it. And I do it with my whole heart, my whole mind, but I tend to do it in a compulsive way. 
And that makes sense. So, yeah, it's that off and on switch, yeah. the black and white. I totally get it. Tell me about L.A. and being a gay man in the late 70s, early 80s. The, the, the funny thing is, you know, uh, my family had the don't ask, don't tell rule far before the government, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nobody in my family, you know, like my, my, my you know, cousins and, you know, aunts and uncles, I, I just never discussed sexuality with them because it's only a little component of my human, my, my being. Um, and, but they probably figured out since I'm six years old and never met men married that, you know, something was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, let me tell you that, uh, and I'm sorry, we keep coming back to suicide, but I'm realizing there was a pattern. I, I consider I, from the very young age, less than 10, I knew I was different. Right. And, but I learned in my church that if, if you liked boys, um, you were not going to pass go, you're, you know, you were not going to collect $200 and you're going to go straight to hell. So I, I prayed and prayed and prayed to be different and, and for God to, re, re, you know, remove these feelings from me. And, uh, and I thought of killing myself uh, many times before I graduated. And I was in a fraternity at UCLA, you know, being gay there isn't too, you know, too encouraged. Um, and, and so I considered uh, committing suicide rather than have anybody know my d- big dark secret, right? So shame has a recurring theme in my, you know, my life. And it's always better to kill yourself rather than be shamed. Now, when I was um, 22 and I graduated, uh, I just decided that, you know what, the reason God didn't grant my wish is that, that I was created that way. And it may not be popular among uh, people in religion, but it is my, my, my hair is brown, my eyes are green, and that's the way I was created. And I stopped fighting it. But that doesn't mean I was happy about it. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I discovered, like, gay bars, I guess, when I got to 21. So that was my senior year of college. And, um, you know, uh, being gay in 1981, I mean, was not popular either, Right. And, you know, you could lose your job over it. I mean, it goes, it was, you know, criminal in, in many, many, many aspects. And so I, I, I was, I was not open about, you know, my, my sexuality because I'd be discriminated against. Right. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons that alcoholism, I think, I don't know what the numbers are, but they're rampant in, in the gay community because, you know, talk about not being accepted, being second class, everything else. But if you're partying, drinking and using drugs, you don't feel that. And so, and that's one of the reasons that it's just, you become invincible when you're drinking and using until you're not, right? And um, I have great empathy. You know, we've had, after George Floyd's, you know, tragic murder and, and, and the demonstrations and Black Lives Matters and everything else, um, you know, it's harder for people of color because they can't hide their color. I could, you know, quote unquote, act straight, whatever that means, which is another stereotype, and I could pass. And so, believe it or not, I was never bullied. I was never called names and or, or anything else. But um, my life was hard. I mean, very, very hard. I when I got involved in in commercial real estate, right. I mean, this is like, it's it, to this day is the last bastion of like white dominance. Almost everybody's in, in the industry is white and male. 
Uh, there's, you know, half, half the, half the lawyers, half the doctors or more are women nowadays in commercial real estate. I'm guessing it's like 10%. Right. And so I chose a profession where, you know, BK is not popular. I treated that, you know, with alcohol too in my twenties and, and drugs. So, um, you know, it, it's, a it's a formative thing. You know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm mindful that for your listener, we're talking a lot about drugs and alcohol. And I'm happy we're doing that because either they themselves have trouble with drugs and alcohol, and I want them to know that there is hope, right? There's 12-step programs, which you hear a lot about. Um, There's cognitive therapy, but there is hope. And so I want you to hear that. Or if somebody in your life is having a problem with with drug or alcohol, and which a lot of times it's just, it's uh, self-medicating depression, by the way. That's really what it is. Definitely, I agree. You know, it really is. And uh, there's a reason that the United States of America instituted prohibition. It was killing people, you know, alcohol, but we couldn't control it. So, yeah, so I want this to be a story of recovery and hope, which is why we're spending a lot of time on it. And it was because of my sobriety and my workaholism that instead of, you know, focusing on negative things, I focused on building a community. And, you know, some people talk about their private life and their public life. There is no such thing with me. I'm a fully integrated guy and I work 24 hours a day, but I don't work a day in my life because I really enjoy helping people and building a city. And I, and I would say I, I haven't had children, right? But I'm, I'm having a, a city. And, um, and some of my kids, I was giving you that, that uh, Butler metaphor a little earlier. In the 1960s, some of my kids are in trouble and they're on the streets. Uh, in the 1960s, we had a program called Family Affair. Uh, a television program. And it was a story of a guy played by Brian Keith. And he, his, his, uh, I think his sister and her husband were killed. And so he ended up with three orphaned, two girls and a boy. And in family affair, they lived in a high rise in New York. And of course, Brian Keith had to go to work. I think he was an advertising executive. And there was uh, a guy named Mr. French, who was a butler. And, uh, who lived in the apartment and he took care of the kids and took care of Brian Keith. So, and as a, as a young boy, listen to this, David, as, as a young boy and as a uh, son of a cable splicer, which is a very skilled profession, by the way, but it, but we didn't live in a mansion. We lived in a two bedroom, one bathroom place with no air conditioning in Northridge, California that hits 110 frequently in the summer. Right. So my joke is it's not all my fault. I, I fried there. So <laughs> I, I would, I would draw, I would draw, I would as a, less than 10, I would on a piece of paper, straw, drawing floor plans of big mansions, like a center hall and living room to the right and a dining room to the left and a grand staircase and a China room that connected the, the dining room and a separate door to the kitchen that you could walk through and a stage. How do, how does a, a kid who's growing up in a two bedroom, one bathroom home, start drawing like that. And that's what dreams are made. Well, it it is. And I'm convinced I, I, in 1987, I went to Windsor castle and, um, and when I walked in, I had a sense of deja vu that I've never had before or since. And so my joke is I was Henry the eighth who built the castle. This life is, is my purgatory for killing Anne Boleyn. And, uh, and that's why I'm so comfortable around, you know, big houses. (laughs) And so, I view myself, uh, and by the way, the butler of a house is in many ways more powerful than the owner of the house because they control everything. 
coming and going. And usually the boss does what they tell them and so on and so forth. So instead of the mayor downtown, you know, or Mr. Downtown, I consider myself a, the butler of downtown. Downtown is my mansion, every aspect of it. When I walk down the street and I see trash on the, on the ground, if it's not icky wet trash, I pick it up. Just, I wouldn't leave trash on my, the, you know, in my loft here on the floor and I don't leave it on the ground. Um, and my job is to help people in the community uh, and it's to help the people dying in the streets. My kids that are, those are my alcoholic and drug addicted kids. And um, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know. So I got to do what I can while I'm here, right? Exactly. When I was in the throes of my addiction in the you know early 1990s, I had a, a reading by a psychic. And she was just amazing. She, did, she didn't know any of my friends or anything else. And she was calling stuff exact, down to people's names, okay? Um, and I said, you know, how long do I live? And she hesitated. And I said, just tell me. And she said, 93. So, uh, so I'm going with that, you know? So if, it, if it's right, great. If it's not right. But I don't make a presumption that I will. And I literally, just like I stay sober, it's one day at a time. And that doesn't mean you can't plan for the future and do good things for the future. But I don't, I don't take it for granted. You know, um, when I was in the old bank district, which we, you know, the, those, those uh, conversions of office to residential the, the neighborhood was extremely rough. So I went to work for Tom Gilmore, who was the developer and his partner, Jerry Peroni, Ms. Jerry Peroni, a lady. That's a funny story. I, I wanted to go talk to Tom because he was redeveloping these buildings and everybody thought he was crazy. And uh, a woman named Carol Shaws, who was the head of the bid that I mentioned that I worked for. And she was also the president and CEO of Central City Association. She's a lawyer by profession. And in, in the in the 90s, she came up with this idea of converting the office buildings to residential. because And she was able to help get past something called the adaptive use ordinance. Because according to our land use laws, you couldn't convert res, a commercial to residential. So through Carol's leadership, and then Tom took advantage of it. He wouldn't see me, wouldn't take my call. Finally, a guy named Ed Rosenthal who sold in the buildings, got me a meeting with Tom and I just talked to him about, you know, his, his project and what he was doing. And he was very interesting, charismatic. And he asked me, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is my last day with Cushman and Wakefield. It was leap year day, you know, uh, February 29th, the year 2000. Right. And uh, I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And he's like, why don't you become my leasing agent? <laughs> I'm like, I've never leased an apartment in my life. He said, no, but you're a good salesman. So I, we, we talked money and I accepted and I was never unemployed, but the neighborhood, we had three buildings uh, that we were bringing to market, San Fernando, the Hellman, the Continental Building. And we had homeless encampments in front of our buildings. I accepted this, this job, but after I accepted, I'm like, how are we going to lease these 230 apartments between three different buildings with homeless people and people shooting up and it feels pretty dangerous? How are we going to lease them? I'm like, that's, that's something we should have thought about before we spent $33 million, right? So I had a spiritual experience and it was, it was, I had this intuitive thought, which is we needed to be dog friendly. And um, we had these old office buildings. We'd taken off all the, the carpeting and the floors and we were down to concrete. We had sealed it with epoxy. And it's hard to be a renter in Los Angeles and many places and have a dog because landlords are legitimately concerned about pee and poop and wear and tear, right? Totally. totally so yeah. um, I had this aha moment and I shared it with the group and the angels sang. It was like, Wah! and they said, do it. Let's do it. 
I, over a 20-month period, I leased almost all of, before I went to work for Carol, I leased 230 apartments to 350 people with 150 dogs, David Wilson. Wow. And guess what? <laughs> that changed the world. It did. But now we had people, early adopters, by, by the way, many of whom were gay, right? Anytime the, gay, the gays move into the neighborhood, the property values go up, um, and whatever that is. And now people were having to go outside to walk their dog. Well, guess what? The people that were using drugs and in camping, that wasn't a comfortable place to be anymore. So unfortunately, they were, they were still homeless and they were still often addicted, but they moved away from there and moved a couple of streets over. But now when we're walking down the street, you and I, David, and you have a dog and I have a dog, I say, oh, your dog's really cute. you know. And then we start talking about our dogs. Very natural way to build community. If, if I, as a 60-year-old man, and walking down the street without my dog, by the way, I had a dog named Buddy, the golden retriever. He was known as the first dog in downtown. And um, But if I was walking down the street today and I just start talking to some random woman, she's like, who is this dirty old man? But if, I'm, but if I'm walking down the street with a dog, it opens up. So remember I was telling you about my second surgery in 08? That, that happened on uh, June 16th, uh, 2008. And on the 20th, uh, when I got home from the hospital after being there for four days and, and buddy who had been having real trouble with his legs, uh, was being taken care of by a friend of mine and he had been collapsing and, and shuddering and having seizures. And I got a, I call that morning. It was the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. Yeah. Friday, the 20th. Can you tell I like numbers? Um, oh, you're an incredible reserve of numbers. Yeah, I can't believe yeah. you remember so, all these dates. So on the, on the 20th, <laughs> I, for, I was home, got home on the 19th, slept, and then on the 20th, I got a call that Buddy had, could not get up. And he was 12 years and eight months old. He was a gold retriever. And I knew that was the end. And uh, so my surgeons would have killed me. But my mom, my mom and Daryl came down and we, and we got Buddy and we helped him make that transition. And, you know, David, the best, one of the best days of your life are the day you get a pet and one of the worst is when, you, when they go, right? Yeah, I agree. And, um, so after curling up in a ball and crying for about four days, I called people that used to do daycare for Buddy. And I said, I want to get back in the saddle. I want to get another dog. And, uh, and they said, well, we've just found this little dog in downtown in traffic at Hill and Pico. No collar, no tags, nothing. And I was recovering from this big surgery, right? So I said, I said is he a gold retriever? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, because I like that breed. you know. And uh, I'd had another one, Gretchen. And... So they said, let's just bring him over. That's like going to look at puppies, right? So he came into my place. He ignored me. He went right to a big pile of stuffed animals because Buddy, you know, bird dog, loved plush animals. And he pulled out from like the middle of the pile a blue bunny, which was Buddy's favorite toy. So I named him Scooter because he, you know, got through traffic. So he's not Buddy, but I believe that Buddy sent him. And pulling that blue bunny was his way of letting me know. And so I've had scooters probably a year old then. So that was June 28th of 2008. I, I met a uh, scooter and, uh, and I told the people you got to keep him for a month cause I can't lean over and pick up stuff. And so he's been with me. And then in uh, May of 2019, this is a story of resilience and redemption too. Um, I'm full of them. Scooter was licking his paw one day and I turned it. It was like raw. And I like, Oh, he must've got a piece of glass in it took him to the vet. Well, it turns out it was a cancer tumor that had broken the skin. It had grown aggressively, but he wasn't limping before this or anything. 
so the choices were in, in, in May of 2019, uh, put him down or have a surgery to, they don't remove just the paw because they, they try to, you know, walk on the stump and they don't remove it at the, at the, the elbow or the knee, however you want to look at it because the rest doesn't have any function. So the protocol to remove a, a limb to help, try to help save a life is to remove the shoulder. So you take the shoulder and everything. And, you know, he was an older dog at the time, and I wasn't quite sure I wanted to be that guy that makes his dog live on three legs. And I uh, posted on Facebook about my quandary, and I said, I don't want, you know, advice on my wall, but if anybody wants to contact me to tell me their thoughts. And everybody deluged me with, you have no idea how how resilient dogs are, and they don't have this, they just get over it. So for about three days, I had made the decision to, you know, let him transition. And then I made a decision to do the surgery. So on May 30th, 2019, he had his big surgery. And, uh, and on the 31st of May, 2019, he walked the next day. Amazing. And, and so he's got almost 20 months of, of being a cancer survivor. And so when I'm facing difficult things in my life, right? Scooter was just resilient. He just walked, he was running a week later, you know, with a smile on his face. And so whenever I encounter a tough thing, I scooterize it, meaning I approach it in the same way with Scooter, which is just onward and forward and let's get on with it, which has become very, very useful during this COVID crisis, right? Definitely. You know, um, every, every big city around the world has suffered greatly. Um, from COVID. So we've, you know, when we did the shutdown, restaurants and retailers went out of business, by the way, they're never coming back. Um, uh, And we're going to have to figure out what to do with all that space. So I'm working on that now. Uh, And there's, you know, there's great questions. Will downtowns come back? And I'm here to tell you, yes, they will. Will it be easy? No, it won't. Will, Will it ultimately happen? Yes, it will. Will it be the same as it was? No, it will. Will it be different? Yes, it will. See, there's a, do you see that pattern? I would be lying to tell you that I haven't been very discouraged by, by all of it. And then I just have to remember this little dog named Scooter and just be as strong as he is. And he, he just like the renaissance of the downtown and the renaissance of Hal Bastion, he's, he's in the rena, renaissance of Scooter. And I've got to spend all my time with him for the last year. Okay, you've made it. You've got through part one of Hal Bastion on another track stay with us and let's get to the other side and uh, switch over to episode 13 we stay at the personal level and we really hit home with some home truths it's riveting to listen to and you won't forget it this has been a brick can production for urban aspect incorporated keeping us safe on the roads of north america